Dog Nation. Happy Thursday night to you. Welcome into Cover 4 Live. My name is Brandon Adams. Happy to have the entire Cover 4 team with us here tonight. Connor Riley, Jeff Sintel, Mike Griffith, and really happy to begin what is now our weekly schedule for Cover 4 Live after a summer break of rest and relaxation. Everyone's tanned and ready to go for a season that's on the way. Georgia practice obviously beginning here this week, getting a chance to hear from players as we head towards the weekend and really start to lay the groundwork for what this 2021 season is going to look like for the uh, Georgia Bulldogs. And so with that in mind, let's start with practice chatter to uh, get things going off. And Connor, I guess I'll start with you on this. If you look at the entirety of the roster that's about to go through practice, some for the very first time, some after only having arrived to Georgia via the transfer portal a few months ago, who do you think the player on this Georgia roster right now that needs to have a big camp, maybe more than anybody else, if you had to single it down to one name, who's the name you'd come up with there? I'll take Darian Kendrick here, the cornerback transfer from Clemson. Georgia needs guys at that cornerback position to step up, and I do think that Clemson's going to have some pretty talented wide receivers out there. The other cornerback spot I think is pretty clearly going to be an unknown, regardless of who ends up starting that position out there. And while there are other perhaps names that have greater upside, I think for that first game against Clemson, they really need Darian Kendrick to come in show why he was an experienced cornerback at Clemson, why he was able to start in college football playoff games and be, you know, maybe not necessarily a lockdown cornerback, but a cornerback that they feel 100% comfortable and confident in leaving on the outside. Ben, Benjamin mentions uh, Adam Anderson, I think is an interesting name there. And Connor, the name that you share, I think is pretty interesting too. Mike, if you kind of, you know, scan the field and take a look at what's going to be going on on these practice, uh, practice fields for the next uh, few weeks, who's the name that maybe comes to mind for you? Nolan Smith, you know, I'm going to go with Kirby's pick. You know, Kirby said that, you know, it was going to be really important to find somebody that could fill those shoes that Aziz Ajilari left as a premier pass rusher. You think about the way Aziz took over the Cincinnati game. They don't beat Cincinnati without Aziz Ajilari. I know if fans are butts about it. I, I think it's a given the quarterback, but, but Kirby's told us JT is locked in and it's really all about what the other offensive guys can do. But to single out one guy that I think needs to come to fruition and you know, Nolan Smith, number one ranked recruit in the class of 2019. Um, too early to call him a bust, but so far he hasn't done much. This needs to be a big year for Nolan Smith. Chevron Hannah, I'm not going to read your comment out loud, but it did make me laugh. So, uh, Chevron, it's good to have you here. And interesting stuff from Mike. You know, Jeff, you know Nolan Smith pretty well, having covered him on the recruiting trail. And I think you would tell us all that Nolan's got a pretty big personality, that if he really could, as Mike suggests – provide a big spark during these summer practices, I think that that could provide a big lift for George, right? I mean, obviously, if you're Kirby Smart, you want everybody to have great practices, but there are a few force multipliers out there. There are a few guys that if they really explode in a big way, then there's no telling what they could do to lift the spirits of the players around them. And I think that Mike's right, Jeff. Nolan Smith may very well be one of those guys. Definitely. Definitely one of those energy guys, to say the least. Uh, funny, when I, when I hear someone mention the word bust in Nolan Smith's name, I'm going to say bust some heads or, you know, bust through the line of scrimmage. I'm, I'm not going to think bust for a, quite a long time when it comes to Nolan Smith. I'm going I'm to be in the camp that I, I think the, the, um, the tepid rise so far of Nolan Smith as a Georgia Bulldog I think that says a lot more about uh, Aziz Ojolari than I think it does about Nolan Smith. I, I just think um, Aziz is that special and that talented. Um, you know, for for me, my answer to this topic, Brandon, is it, it's got to be what I don't I don't want to overthink this too much. It's got to be Jermaine Burton. Georgia needs a number one receiver. Georgia needs a number one receiver to play like a number one receiver. They need him to take that step forward. And I think, you know, everybody's going to think about what Kiaris can be and then maybe what A.D. Mitchell can be, what Justin Robinson can be, um, what Gilbert can be. But the closest thing Georgia had to a, a, a number one receiver outside of George Pickens last year, there were stretches where that was Jermaine Burton. And I think Jermaine Burton's got to play uh, like a number one receiver and play like one of the better receivers in the conference. And I think that's the straw that's going to stir the offensive drink, so to speak. Mike, what else is interesting to you about spring pra- – uh, not spring practice, excuse me, the actual summer camp before the season begins this fall, practice beginning this week. What else is interesting to you about what's about to unfold, what's unfolding right now? Well, the first thing I want to put up for us is a health report, the injury report. I, I think Karis Jackson is really important in the receiving room. Uh, to Jeff's point, I do think Jermaine Burton will emerge as the leading receiver this year. 
Uh, but Kieris is a very important guy. He's a leader. He's a tough guy. They rely on him in a lot of different areas. He had the offseason knee injury that was disclosed at the SEC media days. That, that was big news. Uh, you know, granted, it was an arthroscopic procedure, but as we saw with Trey McKitty last year, those things can slow you down for a while. It, it was a good six or seven weeks before McKitty uh, really looked like much of a contributor. So I think Kieris is very important. Uh, most important, though, is Nicobe Dean. Coming off the torn labor and surgery, you know, you go back and Nicobe was on fire. There were three games where he had double-digit tackles, and you can pretty much tell he got hurt against Mississippi State because he dropped his single digits. Uh, then he kind of laid it on the line against Cincinnati, knowing that he was going to have surgery, uh, came up with a game-saving tackle. Um, I, I think Nicobe Dean, I think he's the heartbeat of the defense. I was watching a replay of the 2017 National Championship game today and and watching Roquan Smith all over the field, and I said, boy, that, that is N'Kobe Dean, and Georgia needs him to be sideline to sideline and, and be that heart and soul. So those two injuries in particular, uh, Dominic Blaylock is a guy that wasn't clear uh, as of July 21st or whenever Kirby spoke. It would be great if Dom could get back. Um, you know, that's a guy that suffered this knee injury last August. It's been a year. Don't want to rush him, certainly, uh, but it would be a bonus if Dominic Blaylock could do some things. I do think that Marcus Rosemey Jack Sane is cleared. Uh, that's good news. And if there's any other injuries, we're not aware of. But those those two guys primarily, I want to know about Kiaris Jackson and Nicobe Dean. They're two important leaders. And, Connor, obviously a lot of the discussion centers around, hey, who are going to be the key starters and who are going to kind of take that next step towards, you know, what I'd kind of call superstar status type players, those that lead in big statistical categories. But there's also a battle to contribute via depth. And for a program like Georgia that's going to face some of the best teams in the country this year, at least it hopes to, certainly starting with Clemson and then, you know, hope for postseason that's filled with games like that. You've also got to have capable backups as well, capable Per, you know, provisions of depth, if you will, when you look beyond just the 2020, the, the 22 guys that you think of as starters for this team, you know, where do you see key backup battles taking place and, you know, key guys just below that level of maybe player who's always on the field, but an important name to consider as well. Well, I, I think the biggest or most interesting backup it will have no impact at all on the Clemson game. The one I'm most interested in is how this backup quarterback battle, I think, really develops between Carson Beck and Brock Vandergriff because Stetson Bennett, if, if JT Daniels goes down, he might be the first one off the bench for a play, a series or two, if his helmet gets knocked off or something along those lines. But in terms of long-term development, it will be between Beck and Vandergriff, but that's obviously not going to have much impact on the Clemson game. I will say, I don't know how much it is of a position battle between them and fighting for playing time. But two guys that I think are worth keeping an eye on in terms of how they develop would be MJ Sherman at that outside linebacker yeah. position, a guy we didn't get a chance to see much out of, at least in the defensive side of the ball. But he's probably going to need to play in some role this season given the depth that they have at outside linebacker there. And then at left tackle, it's Amarius Mims. I don't expect him to start that Clemson game, but I think George would really, really benefit it at some point this year. Amarius Mims develops into a starting caliber offensive lineman. And so if he's able to continue to make progress through spring or through fall practice, excuse me, I think that's going to be a really big benefit to Georgia in the long run. Maybe not necessarily for that Clemson game, though. So Jermaine King is giving me a hard time in the comment section for my hat. He says it looks tiny on my head. Actually, that wasn't Jermaine King. That was Jay Shipes that said that. Uh, it probably is a little tiny on my head. The truth is, I was in the treadmill before this started and my hair was a mess. Sometimes I can kind of comb it out when it's sweaty like that. Tonight, I was not quite able to, so I had to. Yeah, Brad, I was getting a workout in. <laughs> you know what? Listen, I'm trying to get my uh, fighting weight in time for the season to start. Everybody's got their own preseason ritual. I guess that's kind of mine for right now because gosh knows it's hard to do that once the season begins. But Jeff, one of the names that Connor mentions is Carson Beck. And to me, if you want to go like, say, spring practice into the point we are now, I think the chatter around Beck, some of it's whispers, obviously, but nonetheless, the chatter around Beck is so different for me than it was during his first year on campus, where, to be completely honest with you, I just never heard anything about him. And that's not necessarily a bad thing or not necessarily a good thing. It's just it was kind of quiet on the Carson Beck front. But I, I think that you're starting to get a sense, though, that something, whether it's just people are now more willing to talk about it or maybe a light has come on that maybe didn't exist during his first year on campus. But it seems like the chatter and buzz around Beck as he goes into these practices it's certainly different than he was when he first arrived at UGA. And I, I do think that Carson right now is one of the more interesting players in this roster. Yeah, I think what you have with freshmen, Brandon, is uh, I hear this term a lot. You have silver dollars for eyes. 
and that's just not even looking at the rush being from the quarterback position. But um, there was a there was kind of a big adjustment there. I mean, I, I think uh, you know everybody thinks they've heard everything. They've they've got a guy. They've heard. They've got a guy. But I think the combination of everybody's guys and everybody's sources. I think all the information is that Carson Beck has looked pretty stinking good so far at spring and also through the summer. And the one thing I want to reiterate, because I see we have some Bama fans that somehow always show up on our uh, show up on our feeds, but you got to remember this about Carson Beck, guys. Carson Beck was committed to Alabama. Uh, Nick Saban, who I think knows a few, a few things about playing quarterback, Nick Saban wanted Carson Beck to be his quarterback. And then even after he committed to Georgia, um, Nick Saban still wanted Carson Beck to be his quarterback. So um, let's just defer to a guy that really knows something about playing winning football. And I think Carson Beck is a name that he's got the, the gear under his belt. He's got the acumen with the offense. He's always had the physical tools. Um, everybody starts looking at backup positions. I thought a great job of rolling through all about all the backup positions that came to mind. It was like he went five for five really fast with the route tree. Um, the one thing that intrigues me, maybe some names he didn't mention, is I want to see what happens with Channing Tindall and Quay Walker and whether those guys are the – two and three linebacker or whether, you, you know, Quay Walker plays some outside and, in, 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 you know, third down and stuff like that. I think you know, there's a lot of pieces on Georgia's defense. The Georgia defense is all talented. But I want to see where Channing Tindall and Quay Walker fit because if they fit nicely and they produce, those are, those are all SEC type talents there for Georgia. Yeah, I think that's right. Mike, somebody also asked about the uh, secondary in the comment section a moment ago. How do you feel that is going to start to play out? And you get a sense right now for what we may see come September when it comes from that group? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Lewis Seen is is truly, a, you know, an all-SEC type, yeah. you know, probably go pro after this year. Uh, Christopher Smith is the guy that stepped in for Richard LeCount. I, I know that Christopher has added some weight. Uh, that's an important position. You, know, you need him to, to play big, play bigger. Uh, Tyke Smith was brought in to start and play at the star. I think he will. Uh, I think Jalen Kimber is your number one corner right now. Darian Kendrick came in a little bit smaller maybe than people thought when you take a look at his body size. Uh, Amir Speed is a great matchup. He's a long, tall guy. BA, we talked about him. Actually had a really good spring. I know that G-Day game, his feet got tripped up on a play, but, but don't let that fool you. I think that's your three-man rotation coming out against Clemson. Uh, Kimber, Kendrick, and Speed. And I think Keely Ringo uh, continues to make big strides. I mean, you know, this is a really talented kid, but he missed all of last season off the field, was where he was supposed to be in the classroom, but it takes those reps on the field now. Maybe Keely will close, uh, you know, faster than I think, but, you know, Kirby likes those guys that he knows he can count on that are sound. Uh, that's Jalen Kimber. Um, again, you know, Kendrick did some nice things at Clemson, um, you know, had some tough moments. But he is a tested player. He was an all-SEC player. He does have upside. They recruited him for a reason. I think he'll start. And Speed's been in the house for a minute. Um, and I think he's had a really good offseason. So I see those three guys as your three cornerback rot rotation, Tyke Smith at the star, Seen and Christopher Smith, and, and then maybe Breeny and, and Poole, uh, Nyland Green, some guys that will you know continue to, to work to try and get in the lineup. So one more thing on this topic, and then we can, I want to move on and talk about some of the other news that's out there in the world today. But then this may be a dud topic, but I want to throw it out there to see who, who takes the bait on it. If I were to ask you to predict between now and September 4th, the biggest headline to come out of Georgia, what's the first thing that comes to mind for anybody who wants to take that? What do you think is going to be the biggest talker as summer practice rolls on for Georgia that generates the most buzz amongst fans? Anybody have an idea about that? Uh, I think insert name here claims left tackle spot. I think that would probably be the biggest buzz talker, as long as it's somebody besides Jamari Salyer. I think that would be one for me. I think well, even Salyer alone. Yeah, I mean, I think even – I'll let you uh, answer this, Connor, but I think even Salyer alone also generates buzz as soon as Kirby Smart gives voice to that, Connor. I think it's going to be Jamari Sawyer at left tackle, but it's because Tate Ratledge ends up winning that right guard spot and ends up proving, I think, better to – to be a better right guard maybe than Xavier Truss is as a left tackle. And thus they move Jamari Sawyer to left tackle, Justin Schaefer to left guard. Mike, I do think that the uh, Ratledge conversation is an important thing to have when we discuss offensive line because, man, you really get the sense based on G-Day and some of the buzz that was around Ratledge during spring practice 
the Georgia coaches certainly believe that he's ready to play. And so, as Connor pointed out, and I believe that he's right when he says this, that some of the evaluation that you make about your tackle situation is also based on the fact that certainly there seems to be no reason Georgia wouldn't have confidence that Ratledge could man one of those guard spots, probably a right guard spot. And I, I do think Ratledge has to be considered a very big factor here for starting role. Yeah, I think there's a lot of big factors, though. I, I'm not going to forget about Cedric Van Pran, um, Warren McClendon, uh, Broderick Jones. Uh, you mentioned Amarius Mims. Uh, I think Jamari coming out plays left tackle. I, I'm not certain he stays there. Um, I think I'm on Connor's bandwagon with the Marius Mims emerging as the left tackle as the season progresses, especially as the season gets particularly soft after the Clemson game. You've got three or four weeks, pretty soft opponents that you're playing there. My, my headline is going to be a 500-yard passing game for JT Daniels. I think George is going to come out firing. I think this is uh, – I think Kirby's all in. Uh, you know, Centel's Intel told us three years ago that, that Kirby was going after receivers and he meant business. And if Pickens was healthy, it would even be more so. But, uh, you know, this is a team that, you know, they're so good at receiver. They, they've had six of Cortez Hankton's other recruits leave. He recruited over them. He wasn't able to develop them. And so they left because there's better guys coming in, younger, more talented, more skilled. And I think that's going to come to fruition. Again, really soft schedule after Clemson. And, uh, boy, I wouldn't want to be Vanderbilt uh, because I do think that that's a game where Georgia could really go off um, and, and put a lot of points on the board and put a lot of yards through the air. I think they're going to make some statements with their pass game early. Jeff, let me just jump in here really quick with you, though, because the point that I think I'm making about Ratledge, and I think Connor agrees with me, and if he doesn't, he should, you know, he can certainly step up and say so. But I think right now, you know, Mike mentions the category, the grouping of SVP and, you know, Marius Mims, Broderick Jones. I mean, in my mind, this is obviously just a, a guess, but I think it is an educated guess. I have Ratledge well ahead of those other would be contenders for playing time in my mind i've got ratledge slotted in a group well above those because the way that he was used on g-day as kind of a validation of also the buzz that seemed to exist around him at g-day i have ratledge above the group of the other young talented players who are trying to get on the field do you agree with that i you know i mean i guess the thing with Ratledge is you gotta remember you know lots of promise uh i think we just need to remember the justin schaefer name as well because that that becomes you know, left guard, right guard, you know, what, what's the ideal mix there? Is it the best five? You know, I want to caution folks to think about this because I think about it this way. I don't think about the best five. I think about maybe the best five pass protectors, which would kind of keep um, which would kind of keep JT upright and keep JT in the cockpit, not having hit the eject button. You know, a guy <laughs> like Schaefer, I, I, don't, I don't know if I don't know if Schaefer's forte is pass pro. Um I don't know if he's clearly above a lot of guys, especially with um, especially with his years of experience and his ability. I mean, Justin Schaefer's probably going to end up playing a lot of years in the NFL. Um, but I don't know if you had to look at him, he's probably more dominant as a run blocker maybe than as a pass protector. Um, that experience will be big right there. And I just, I just I think I think the one thing we could probably all agree on is that offensive line is going to be a constant evolution. But <clears throat> folks are going to talk about it. But I'm of the premise that it's going to change and guys are going to rise and guys are going to fall. And the guys that earn the job are going to be really stinking good football players where Georgia could go two, three deep in that line. We've talked about this for a long time. I think whoever rises to the top, whoever starts against Clemson, whoever takes the job away, you know, Devin Willick is a guy that you don't hear a lot, a lot, lot of stuff about, but you know, a lot of fans don't bring that name up, but you know, Willick's a guy that has a bright potential. Austin Blasky has bright potential. Jared Wilson has impressed a lot of folks since he's been in Athens, Dylan Fairchild, Micah Morris, you know, they've just got so many great offensive linemen that if, if there's a name you don't like or a young name, that's not there yet, I think it's just a it's just a culture problem. I mean, a culture problem meaning they've got so many great offensive linemen that whoever whoever lines up, whoever is in the starting lineup, they're going to exceed and they're going to be very good. All right, let me circle the runway on this one more time because I want to make my point more clear. Connor, I believe that barring injury, there are four names that we know are starting for George along the offensive line: Schaefer, Erickson, McClendon, Salyer. Now you can move the pieces around. Certainly Salyer. Those four names, barring injury, I believe are going to start for Clemson, which leaves a whole bunch of young, in most cases, former elite recruits competing for that last spot. And obviously anything could happen. But as we go into the start of spring, into these summer practices, 
My hunch is, is that Ratledge is well ahead of that other group, or at least, at least, a, you know, a body length ahead of that other group in terms of becoming that fifth starter on the basis of the way that spring played out. Do you agree with that? I'm what, today's August 5th? Yes. There are six names competing for five starting spots in that first game against Clemson in my eyes. You have obviously the four that you mentioned. You have Xavier Truss at the left tackle spot, and then you have Tate Ratledge at the right guard spot. And I do think Truss and Ratledge are both going to play against Clemson. They're going to mix and match there, put in some heavier personnel sets. But as of right now, going into spring, going into that Clemson game, now look, if Georgia was opening against UAB, if they were opening against you know, a South Carolina or maybe a, a, a program that is a clear step down from where Clemson is, maybe it's a little bit of a more open, you know, competition, especially with some of those younger guys. But I think Georgia right now feels good with about the sixth lineman that they have. And it's going to come down to, frankly, which is the better fifth? Tate Ratledge at right guard or Xavier Truss at left tackle? I think that's what they sort of trust right now. And I think that's going to play itself out over the next three weeks. We oh, have to leave that conversation right there. Thanks for being here on Cover 4 Live today. My name's Brandon Adams. That's Connor Riley, Jeff Sintel, Mike Griffith, all on hand there as well. Georgia getting going with practice here this week. A lot of coverage of that rolling into the weekend. We can't wait to provide that for you around here at Dog Nation. Another story that we're watching very closely, as Ross Dellinger reported this week at Sports Illustrated, there seems to be a growing appetite for massive schedule change for the SEC as Texas and Oklahoma are eventually integrated into the league whenever that happens. There's also some conventional wisdom, and that actually may happen later rather than sooner now because of the intricacies of the television deal of the SEC. But nonetheless, when Oklahoma and Texas are eventually in this league, Dellinger reports sources inside the SEC that say, on the basis of having a 10-game season a year ago against nothing but conference foes, there's an appetite for a nine-game conference slate right now, and obviously also the possibility that there could be much larger rotation of opponents not playing quite so many of the same teams over and over again, which could eventually lead to the divisions all the way around. Mike, there are two ways you can go with this. You can talk about what the SEC will do, but for the moment I'm actually more interested in what you think the SEC should do. So if you were Greg Sankey and you had absolute power, which I'm sure you would enjoy uh, He's not using, far off. <laughs> uh, um, if you had that kind of power – what would you want to do? How would you set up the SEC schedules if you could? Well, I, I'd keep Alabama in the West, and I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I don't see that happening. Based on what Greg Sankey said last week, he kind of hit it around it. You know, what is it, one every 12 years where you get to play another opponent from the other division, which would indicate that they're going to get rid of the cross-division annual rivalry game. If you're going to do that – then you can't move Auburn to the east and keep Alabama to the west because that's the SEC's biggest rivalry, arguably the biggest rivalry in the country. So the SEC is not going to punt that. So that means if they're going to get rid of the annual cross-division opponent, they're going to keep Alabama and Auburn together. And the cleanest move would be to move them to the east division. That would also be attractive, uh, not just for Texas and Oklahoma, but it would make it a little bit more understandable why you're not hearing as much noise from Texas A&M and Arkansas because they'd be getting rid of Alabama in the West and their road could, you could say their road would be easier by adding Oklahoma and Texas than keeping Alabama and Auburn. I, I would make that argument. Certainly. Uh, it would also make the league more attractive to Texas and Oklahoma. Those are two schools that typically get what they want. Um, I I'd like to see Alabama stay in the West. I, I think that's the most equitable thing, but um, what I, what I want's not happening. What's happening is Alabama and Auburn, if they keep the divisional structure as is, uh, they're going to be headed to the east. And I think you want to keep the divisional structure because you need to have a mechanism to make the SEC championship game make sense. The pod system, the rotations, that's over the top. That's too close to the NFL. I think you've got to keep it somewhat, somewhat recognizable. And therefore, I think that Alabama and Auburn will move to the east division. Mike, the one thing that I have heard some whispers from out west a little bit is if they were to go to what has commonly been described as the 14 pods, the idea that you would have Oklahoma, Texas, Texas A&M, and Arkansas in the same pod, at least somebody out west doesn't like that because there's a little bit of a chatter related to that there as well, that all four of those westernmost SEC teams, which would be great rivals, they in a lot of ways already are great rivals, the idea that those four would be in the same pod together there's a little bit of chatter out west of, are we sure we want to do that? Are we sure we want to put all four of these old, you know, big eight Southwest Conference type teams in the same pod? 
Yeah, I just the, the pod thing just it's just from outer space to me. I mean, I, I don't even recognize it. It doesn't make sense. It's too much newness. I, I'm not saying it won't happen. Um, you know, I think one of the questions we've got to answer, which you know, this has all been backdoor, underhanded dealing. By the way, you know, this the same Oklahoma AD that served on the college football playoff committee that was beyond reproach, and anybody questioning his ethics is the same guy that cut a backdoor deal. And, and stabbed all these other schools in the Big 12 in the back by making this move and left them for dead. Um, these, these are the administrators we're supposed to trust in the college football playoff committee, by the way. Texas's athletic director was recently removed from the college football playoff committee and replaced by Kansas State, obviously, with some ethical concerns. So to me, uh, I think the college football playoff committee takes a hit. Um, but, but, man, you know, they're saying 2025 – I, I don't buy it. I, I don't trust. You know, they've lost my trust. College football has lost my trust. It's it's a money grab right now. Uh, it's not what's best for the fans. It's not what's best for the conference. It's about what's best for the money. And uh, and I understand that. I understand it, Brandon. I do. Doesn't mean I like it. So yeah. when they tell me that's going to be 2025, I'm not I'm not all in. Money changes everything. And, and if it turns out to be worthwhile for uh, Oklahoma and Texas to pay that 75 or 80 million dollar penalty and get out early, or if the Big 12 disbands, there is no penalty, and they can move quickly. I think this will be determined by what happens with the college football playoff. We've seen Ohio State, some of these other conferences getting a little uh, antsy about the SEC's growth, saying, hey, let's hit the pause button on the playoff. If they if they get that playoff started up and, and aiming for 2023, I think ESPN's got the money to make things happen because they're the puppet master here. Some of the chatter I've heard, as long as CBS is still involved in the SEC television picture, their unwillingness to pony up extra money for expansion might disincentivize Texas and Oklahoma from coming any earlier than they otherwise could, just on the basis of the fact there may not be extra money involved for doing so, at least until CBS is out of the picture, uh, assuming they stick around as long as their contract stipulates they will. But, Jeff, the thing that Mike Brown do agree with, and I think I'm actually – more and more on an island about this. It seems like fewer and fewer people agree with this. I do like SEC divisions. And, yes, I know that makes certain teams play more frequently than there seems to be an appetite for in some college football circles. But Mike brings up a good point. When the SEC championship takes place, it means something to have East versus West. I don't know that the ACC divisions have ever really meant anything. The Big Ten divisions don't really seem to ever really mean anything because so much of the power in that league is imbalanced in favor of the East. I don't think that's likely to ever change. The SEC over the course of decades has flip-flopped a little bit between the two divisions. You know, the Pac-12 North and South, that doesn't really mean much to me one way or another. But the East and West, I think, have pretty distinct cultures. I think the two divisions have established a bit of an identity. And so if the SEC does scrap that, I, I do think, think it's kind of a net loss, but that doesn't mean they won't do it. Yeah, I, I like that. I like, I, you know, I do think that there's some branding and that's a it's a tradition type thing with East versus West. And I think the conference um, has has lived off that and, you know, thrived off that for some time. Now, I got a question and, and maybe I haven't had my knowledge cup filled up yet. One thing that I, that I get fuzzy for me is especially with this new plan with like Auburn and Alabama moving to the East to maintain that. I think only rivalry that gets you know, blown up there as Florida LSU, I think, under that plan. What? How are they deciding that, you know, like kind of what Brendan was saying, how are they deciding who makes the SEC championship game? Is that simply the division champion and the other division champion? Are there four teams? Is there a semifinal? And then there's a there, – are there semifinals for the SEC championship game? Highest ranked teams? I mean, you've got some slobber knocker conferences there if you've got – Georgia, Florida, Auburn, Alabama, all in the all in the East Division, and then you've got Oklahoma, Texas, LSU, Texas A and M in the West. I mean, those are some haymaker divisions. I wonder how they're going to decide who makes the championship game. Is, it is important note. It is important note that the Big Twelve currently doesn't have divisions, and it plays its title of game on the basis of the best overall records. And then once you have tiebreakers, which you frequently will have the need for, typically how highly rated a certain team is factors pretty high in that, but. We at least have a conference already that's having a conference championship game without division. So it's at least possible because the Big 12 is doing it right now. At least they have been doing it. Who knows what the future holds for them? Connor, you wanted to jump in on this topic. Uh, what did you want to say? Yeah, I hear people defending the division format, and and I I am of the of the mindset that we should do away with it because I don't think it creates a distinct SEC league. I think it creates, as BA pointed out, two distinct divisions, but in the last 10 years, do you guys know how many times the SEC East winner has won the SEC championship? 
Georgia in 2017. Before that, you got to go back to Florida in 08. Is that right? One time. Yeah. The, the division format has been set up for the SEC West to dominate the SEC East. That is just the reality of college football for the last decade plus now, which is why I am in favor of not the strict pod system that you saw sort of first get floated out there, but sort of an augmented version of that where you have three permanent rivals for Georgia. I think that would be Florida, Alabama, or Florida, Auburn, and then South Carolina most likely there. And everyone else has their three protected rivalry games every year. That way you can still see the rivalry games that I think make the SEC so special. And then you have six other games that that rotate. So you have 12 teams, six games each year. You still sort of get the four teams. You see each team twice in a four-year span. I think it creates a little bit more of a balanced schedule. You still get those big rivalries that you want. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the division the division setup, the division format, I know Mike has mentioned he doesn't want Alabama in the East. I think this sort of absolves some of that. And at the end of the day, I think more often than not, depending on how we go about finding out the two best teams in the SEC, more times than not, we're still going to get the two best teams in the SEC conference playing in that SEC championship game, which I would also point out was a money creation as well way back in 1992. I mean, Mike, the point that we all have to acknowledge, and you and I, I think, are probably more closely lined on some of this kind of stuff anyway. You know, if you do keep divisions, even if you go to a nine-game conference schedule, that's seven games against your division you got to play each and every year. That means most of the rest of the SEC, you're almost just never going to play. I mean, right? I mean, you're playing in an eight-team division now. That takes up a lot of your schedule. So if you're going to say, and you and I both have kind of said it, hey, I like the idea of keeping divisions – if you're going to say that, then you've got to be comfortable with the idea that a lot of these other teams in the SEC, Georgia's just not going to see them very frequently or whatever other SEC team you want to pick out here as a kind of a reference point. They're not going to see that other division very frequently, If even if you play a nine-game conference schedule with seven other teams in your division. Well, if you play a nine-game conference schedule and you eliminate the, the annual cross-division rival, you'll be playing two teams from the other division um, you know, every year, right? And there's eight teams, so that means every four years you'll play everybody in the other division. You'll play everybody in the conference. That's what happened in the Big Ten. Um, I mean, if you're playing, a, you know, if we're talking about, what, a nine-game conference schedule, you're playing all the seven teams in your division, which gives you a true divisional champion, which is why I like that. And then you play two teams from the other division, and you rotate two different teams every year over four years. That's eight teams, so you'll see everybody as a player over four years from the other division. What do we think about the rest of college football here for a moment? There was chatter coming out of the Pac-12 this week. John Wilner wrote about this in the San Jose Mercury News about Washington State's president uh, talking about, you know, uh, predatory SEC and the fact that they're going to have a response to this. I mean, look, I've read almost everything that's come out about this. I mean, I actually think that for all the chatter of, ooh, what's going to happen next? What's the next domino to fall? And there was a lot of energy around that for quite some time. You get the ACC TV contract that lasts until the middle part of the 2030s. You got the Big Ten teams, even if their product on the field is a poor comparison to the SEC, they're still raking in money hand over fist. Their TV contract prints money. Uh, really, by bringing Texas and Oklahoma, the SEC is kind of only drawing even with what the Big Ten pays per school, for at least from a – from a TV standpoint, Pac-12, I guess they could go poach the rest of the Big 12, but I'm not even really quite sure that there's much value in doing that. Notre Dame can't go any, to any other conference other than the ACC until the ACC grant of rights agreement comes to an end once again many years in the future. I mean, you know, there was a lot of talk at one point in time, Connor, of, oh, Texas and Oklahoma, the first dominoes to fall. What's going to happen next? I don't know there is an obvious next domino to fall right now unless – Kansas really does lead the Big 12 and go somewhere else, which some have talked about them doing. But I don't see a lot of obvious dominoes to fall there unless the Big 12 just totally dissolves and those teams are left scrambling just to find a conference that will take them. Yeah, I think the big dominoes we all thought were going to fall were going to happen relatively quickly. But it, it appears that if any dominoes fall, they're sort of just related to the Big 12 and what happens to the remains of that conference because the ACC, as you point out, is locked in with the ESPN until 2036. Notre Dame is locked in potentially with them until then. And I'll be interested to see what the Pac-12 and the Big Ten do when their conference rights are up. How closely aligned are they to that 2036 date? Because if they maybe start trying to match up there, maybe then we get maybe a better idea of what a you know four-team 
Super Super League sort of looks like, or potentially at the end of the day, I think what we all thought we were going to get was a 24-team Super League, but that's at least over a decade away now. I think it'll probably actually end up being something quite similar to what we saw in the early part of the 2010s where you have Texas A&M and Missouri join the East. You have Nebraska go to the Big Ten. You have Colorado join the Pac-12. And then there's sort of maybe about a 10-year lull, so to speak, of not a whole lot of movement going on within the rest of college football. I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's ultimately where we head to. But, you know, after Texas and Oklahoma and what happens with the rest of the Big 12, the, the Ohio States of the world, the USC's, Notre Dame's, Clemson, though Clemson I don't think ne- is nearly as big a prize as some of those other, other teams are when it comes to television markets – that's still a long ways away and there's not much that can be done to change that sort of around. Jeff and Mike, either of you got a final thought on this before we move on. Dynamite drop in gentlemen. Certainly appreciate that. Uh, all right. It's cover four live uh, here <laughs> with uh, the uh, Jeff Sintel, Mike Griffith, Connor Riley. I'm Brandon Adams. Good to have all of you with us. Uh, Jacob O'Neill also getting ready to watch that Braves game tonight too. By the way, Braves tonight, can inch back within a game and a half of the New York Mets, the suddenly hapless New York Mets who've just been beaten, you know, from pillar to post by the Miami Marlins. So uh, Braves got a little something to play for in St. Louis tonight, and that is a fun thing to be able to see. By the way, speaking of having something to play for, we're going to play a little game here right now, kind of broadening our horizon here a little bit, looking at the rest of the SEC. We're going to use our friends at BetUS, who are a big part of what we do on SEC Country Live each and every week, their season win totals. And, Listen, I, I may or may not give you all these. Let's just kind of see how the pace goes here. Here's what I like to do. I want to throw out the number. Uh, I'd like for you to give me the over or the under. By the way, this is just for those who've never done over-unders before season win totals. These are just regular season games. All games must be played. Uh, we're assuming a 12-game regular season here. And to go over or finish under, it's all about what you do in the regular season. Postseason does not count. So we'll bounce through a few of these here for a moment. Jeff, I'm going to start with you with Alabama, who bet U.S. has a season win total of 11 and a half. got to go undefeated to uh, get the over. A little bit of juice on the under, though, at minus 130. Over under 11 and a half for Alabama. You talking the full season, Brandon, or are you talking about the regular season? Just explain this. Just explain this. Uh, uh, It's regular season only for the season win total. The Auburn game is the last game. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to go under. Under for Jeff on the 11 and a half. Uh, So, so Jeff, if you go under, which obviously 11 and a half is a huge number, where do you see that regular season loss coming from Alabama, if anywhere? Are you just going to say you'll take the field of 12 games and assume they lose one of them? Well, I mean, I just think, I mean, it's Alabama, of course, and they got so many incredible freshmen. I think they got the best wave of freshmen they've ever had in Nick Saban's career. But you got to move a lot of pieces around. You know, who's the running back? Who are the, who are the other alpha receivers? Got a new quarterback. What happens if Bryce Young, I don't know, gets a – gets a test or if Bryce Young misses a game or two, then what happens there? I think one of the things about college football that a lot of the power teams, everybody remembers the Kyle Trask year. Everybody remembers the Joe Burrow year. Everybody remembers last year with Mac Jones. Relatively amazing how these passers stay upright the whole year, don't miss games. Um, I think, you know, obviously that's fortunate. and Maybe that's protection on their mind. But, you know, Alabama going 11 and one, they'll still find a way to get in the SEC championship game in the playoffs regardless. So um, not a lot of Alabama. Like one of the things I like about Alabama is I guess when you look at their dynasties or that they've only had, I think one or two seasons now where they have a perfect record. So in a nutshell, sir, that's why I took the 11 and I, uh, and I went under. Interesting point, Mike, 11 and a half over under and a quick reason why. I'm going to take the under. I mean, you lose six first round draft picks, your quarterback, your offensive coordinator, you know, you play a tough schedule, uh, LSU, Texas A&M, Ole Miss on the right day, uh, Auburn, last game of the season on the road, upset-minded team, uh, Florida. You know, there's there's teams that can rise up and beat you. You know, if you were going to ask me individually which game, I, I would probably take Alabama in every game. But, you know, when you're, when you're playing that caliber of competition, it's kind of like Georgia's schedule last year. I thought Georgia had a really, really difficult schedule, and that's why Florida – that's the one thing Florida had going for them. They had a much easier schedule. They didn't have to play Alabama in the regular season. Um, I'm, I'm going to take the under. I, I think Alabama lose one, maybe even two games if if they have some issues uh, with Bryce Young at quarterback. That's a different system and a different coordinator and a different offensive line and different receivers. 
Connor, 11 and a half for the tie. Over, under, to quick reason why. Over, I don't think there's a team good enough in the SEC West offensively other than Ole Miss that can really push that Alabama defense. That Alabama defense is going to be really, really good this season. And because of the offensive questions I have with LSU and Texas A&M, I think Alabama is going to do enough to go 12-0 and during the regular season. Connor, I'll stay with you for Auburn at six and a half. And boy, that half is doing a lot of work there on that one for the uh, Tigers. Auburn, six and a half, over, under. Once again, this is regular season. Under. Um, They have a tough schedule. They have to go play Penn State at Penn State out of conference. I just don't think this Auburn team is that good. I think they're going to take a step back from Gus Malzahn going to Brian Harson this year, whole new staff. They lost a lot of players, a lot of talented players. And as we've talked about before, there's been a recruiting drain there at Auburn where they're, they were getting good players for a while. And that just sort of stopped there in the late stages of the Gus Malzahn era. And because of that, I think that's really going to show up on the field this year. And I think they're going to go six and six in the first year under Brian Harson. September schedule includes road games at LSU, at Penn State, then early October against Georgia. It is brutal in the early stages for Brian Harson making his SEC debut. Jeff, six and a half for Auburn, over under on that. I'll make it quick. I think under. I think Harson's going to have a tough growing pains. I think they're going to try to ride, ride Tank Bigsby, who's their go to receiver now. I mean, and you guys still think the SEC's kind of. Yeah, exactly. I, I, and I think the SEC still wants to see the best football out of Bojick. So um, all those factors which have been articulated by my other two panelists, uh, that make me feel confident about going under there with Auburn. Auburn, six and a half for you, Mike. What do you think? You know, I'm going to go with the over. You know, Auburn was really young on the offensive line this year. Um, you know, they bring back a lot of guys. I think Tank Bigsby uh, is a great talent. Um, I know that uh, Bo Nix – didn't put up the greatest numbers, but I think he's a savvy quarterback. I mean, this is a guy that beat Oregon as a true freshman. There's something to be said for that. Harson is a good coach. And while he is not familiar with the SEC, uh, Derek Mason and Mike Bobo are. I don't think Mike Bobo is necessarily a, you know, a genius of any sort, but I think he's a solid fo- football coach. And I think Derek Mason is a very good football coach. Um, you know, I'm still not sold on the Mississippi schools. I still yeah. got questions. I, I, now, I could be wrong. O- again, Ole Miss and Mississippi State, you know, we, we've seen them rise up and, and play really well. We've also seen them roll over and play dead. Not sure what Sam Pittman has at quarterback this year at Arkansas. Um, but, uh, you know, Auburn, uh, it, it's just a program that, you know, they always seem to find a way to win seven or eight games. Uh, I, I just – I know Connor's got the inside scoop with some friends there, but – there's a lot of pride there, and, and the Auburn Tigers are a team that I think um, you know, play with a lot of pride, and I think that counts for something. Mike, I actually agree with you on this. I, I think the bottom of the SEC West can be had, but, boy, I think whichever side you go on this, I think you're sweating it, not to the last game of the season because they probably can't beat Alabama, but you're sweating it into November one way or the other. This is a very interesting number for Florida at BetUS. They've got the total set at eight and a half. Uh, a little bit, a good bit of juice though on the over on this one, minus 140. Take the over eight and a half. Uh, uh, Mike, let me start with you on this eight and a half for Florida. You went over or under on the Gators? Well, I'm gonna look at their schedule. So they beat Florida Atlantic, they beat South Florida, they lose to Alabama. That makes them two and one. Let's see. Uh, then they play uh, Tennessee is a win, three and one. Uh, Kentucky's a toss-up. Vanderbilt's a win, four and one. LSU's a loss, four and two. Georgia's a loss, four and three. Carolina's a win, five and three. Sanford six and three. Missouri seven and three. Um, so that's about an eight-win team to me. I think with two, you know, the you know between Florida State and uh, and Kentucky, I think they'll win one of those two games. So I got the Gators winning eight. Phil still did not have Florida as preseason top twenty-five. If that means anything to you, Jeff, what do you think? Uh, over under eight and a half. Florida I think the Gators are going to go over I think um, their running game is something uh, not a lot of the scribes not even the Phil Steele uh, zealots the ones that read that trusty handy publication um, I think Florida is going to re going to have to change its identity this year I think they got three or four backs that are as good as any maybe any backs in the conference um, I like what Florida is going to do in the run game they got a lot of you know these are these are really good viable recruits. Some of them have transferred in. Somebody have waited their time. I still don't think they have the, the guys that scare you to death on the outside and what happens at quarterback. But um, I really like the way Florida will be able to run the ball this year. So I think that I think they can get over there. 
Rodney White says it was eight for Florida a year ago. That was a shorter season, though, Rodney. We should keep that in mind. Uh, Crooking 123 also saying that Florida would only go, like, say, eight and five this year. That'd be, he says, an embarrassment for the Gators. I think that's right. Connor, you know I hate Florida more than anything, but eight and a half is just too low. Do you agree with that? I think I have to take the over here. Yeah. I, 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 again, I think they're going to lose to Alabama. I think they're going to lose to Georgia. But there's still some really talented skill players there. And, look, as much as we all like to rag on Dan Mullen, he always has a pretty good offense, and he'll be able to figure out ways to get the most out of Emory Jones, their quarterback there this season. They've got some talent on defense. I don't know how great it's going to be, but I still think it's good enough to get to nine wins, maybe ten wins if things go right in games against Kentucky and LSU. But I think nine is still very doable for this Florida team, so give me the over there. Jeff, let me come to you for Georgia, ten and a half. Over or under the dogs, ten and a half for the regular season? I think that's a. I think that's over. I think Georgia gets right around. I think Georgia's over that mark. Clemson game, obviously. Uh, tell me what else. Auburn, Florida. I think it's a peach of a schedule for Georgia, especially where they get a lot of young players healthy. Um, a lot of young people acclimated and experienced, not just healthy. Um, and, you know, we got my, my, my man Mike Griffin predicting a 500-yard passing game. That's back in the days of uh, Eric Zire, Ayer Zire, when he used to put up that many with uh, Coach McDuffie as the offensive coordinator. Um, 500 yard passing day. I know that the the recruits that are looking closely at Georgia's program would love to see that ESPN headline with Georgia 500 yards passing. I mean, it's important to know that Georgia is likely to be a favorite in every game minus Clemson. And they could be a double digit favorite in the final 11 games, with the exception of possibly on the road at Auburn and possibly in Jacksonville against Florida. Every other game other than that, Georgia's looking at being a double-digit favorite. Now, Kirby's also lost straight up as a double-digit favorite in 2019, so that's not a guarantee. But, my gosh, 10.5 seems a little bit low. Mike, you'd go over or under the 10.5 here? Oh, I'd go over. Um, I'd go over. I, I, you know, I, I think Georgia could go undefeated. Um, you know, the Clemson game is, is losable, certainly. I know they're underdogs. I'm not, you know, I, I think Georgia's going to win that game and, and probably win it more handily than most people expect. But, uh, you know, injuries can happen, um, you know, but right now we're just guessing, looking at it, you know, sitting here with all things being equal. I think Georgia ought to run the table and go undefeated in the regular season. Connor, how about you? Ten and a half for the dogs. I, I won't go seven wins until here. I'll take the over. Again, I think other than the Clemson game, there really isn't a game, an obvious game in my opinion, that this team should lose. They'll have a talent edge over every team on their schedule. And I think because of that, I, I think 11 is it should be doable. And if it isn't 11 this year, if it is 10 and 2, and maybe they don't go to the SEC championship game, uh, it's going to be a very unfun end of the year if that is the case. It's an apocalypse on the field. That's an, you know ten and two for Georgia this season would be just an absolute apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, of all the numbers that we've given, I probably like the over on Georgia as much as any of the ones you've heard thus far. That seems really there for the taking. Let's do a couple more here really quick. Uh, LSU at eight and a half. Connor, what do you think about the Fighting Tigers? I'm going to take the under here. I think they okay. lose to Florida. I think they lose to Alabama. You said eight and a half, right? Eight and a half. I think they lose to Alabama. And shocker, week one, I think they go out to the Rose Bowl and Pasadena and lose to UCLA. I, I think Chip Kelly's team is going to have a, quite a bit of an upset there week one like, with what they bring back. And I think this LSU team, I just have a lot of questions. Obviously, you know, there were people who were very confident – and Max Johnson. There's not a ton of great depth on this LSU team. So while they have some high-end studs, Kayshawn Boet, a wide receiver, Derek Stingley, Eli Ricks in the defensive backfield, there are some questions about the depth on this team. And because of that, I wonder as, as the season goes on, you know, if, if they're not able to stay healthy, there are going to be some major concerns and questions there. And again, this is an LSU team that very nearly went three and seven last year, if not for a shoot throw. And then, and then you know, winning a five-point game against Ole Miss there at the end of the season. So, I, while there's talent for this LSU team, I think to go 10 and two, I think they're going to end up going eight and four. Connor, you're normally someone who I think of as doing his homework. I'm actually a little bit disappointed that you're apparently not aware of a pretty key piece of information. Week one against UCLA in Pasadena, they've actually announced at the Rose Bowl, they are now serving beer and wine. So for the LSU fans who are making their way out to California, 
well known for drinking every place they ever go completely dry, the LSU fans will be well lubed and ready to go. So, uh, as you said, uh, de facto home game, a lot of LSU fans there liquored up during the game. I think you haven't fully considered the contingent from Louisiana on their way out west for that one, assuming travel is actually allowed to the great state of California. Yeah, so that, I mean, that, that's the thing. California, you know, at the last minute, can decide no fans in the stands. And I think what that's a big advantage. Louisiana, they may indeed decide to do that. <laughs> uh, uh, how about you, uh, uh, Mike, on LSU at eight and a half? I'm going to take the over. I'm, I'm bullish on LSU. I like Max Johnson. I like the talent. Um, you know, I think that was a program that was staggered last year. I think there was some uh, coaches that didn't fit on staff. I think LSU's kind of rediscovered who they are. Um, you know, Major Burns uh, went to that program. He, he likes what he sees there. Uh, I, I like, uh, you know, Ed Orgeron, uh, you know, like a vampire, man. You, you can't kill this guy. He keeps coming back after, you know, one debacle after another in his life and his personal life and his career. Um, you know, Coach O's, uh, you know, to me, I think that they're a resilient group and I think that they've got the quarterback and I think they have the defense and I think they'll get off to a good uh, start and ride some momentum into the season. And I think they're going to win nine games this year. Jeff, eight and a half for LSU. <clears throat> I'm going to have to echo Mike here. I like LSU. Um, I think they've recruited very well. They've got a lot of really strong pieces on defense Defensive line, especially, I think they've got one of the most dynamic young receivers in the SEC um, that everybody will know his name um, pretty pretty quickly out of the gate in Keishon Butte. Butte. And uh, I really like LSU to have kind of one of those resurgent years. They're gonna, they, they've got a lot of recruits off that national championship year, and I think it'll be about ready for those guys to move forward. Now, I'm not having them win the West, but I'm having them win at least eight, win, win at least nine games. All right, let's do two more really quickly, and let's try to make these more rapid fire. Uh, in the East, Tennessee at six. This is an easy under for me. I think that Tennessee is one of the three worst teams in this league this year. Mike, you know Knoxville like the back of your hand. Uh, what do you think about the Vols in six? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking the under. You know, they they, what, they they lost 30 guys to the transfer portal. Uh, they've got a new coach. Uh, they've got an offense that's uh, – you know, built for the power game, and, and now they're going to try and spread. It's they bounce back and forth from Butch to Jeremy to, to Heupel. It's 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 not a good fit. It's going to be a tough season in Knoxville. Connor six for the Vols. I'll take the under. Uh, this defense is going to be atrocious, <clears throat> and because of that, I think even teams that struggle to score are going to put up big point totals against Tennessee this season. Travis McCullough says under, and I think that's a pretty easy take there. My, uh, Jeff, what do you think about the Vols and six at the moment? Uh, Brandon, I'd go under if the line was five, and yeah. uh, that's all we need need to say there. I think it's a bad football team. I really do. Last one, tennis. I mean, Texas A and M at nine and a half. Uh, Connor, what do you think about the Aggies at nine and a half? They have a pretty weak non-conference schedule, and so because of that, I will take the over. I think when they play LSU at the end of the season there, they're going to have figured out this team. It won't be the inexperienced offensive line that we see at the beginning of the season. I still think this team loses to Alabama, but I think this team can get to 10 wins, probably even 11 if things break right on their schedule. Jeff, what do you think? I like over for A&M. Somebody's got to be really good in the SEC West. Um, I think Texas A&M's defense is going to be uh, a pretty sterling unit right there as well, and I think uh, they'll find just enough offense to get things done. Uh, Jimbo can always move the ball. Crow King's got the over. They probably don't have that outside weapon at wide receiver to really be a true threat, as Connor said, against Alabama. But they run the ball. They play defense. That ought to be just about good enough to beat everybody else. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Nine and a half for the Aggies. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take, take the over. Uh, I've got them 10 to 2. There hey, Brandon, go. just wait. Texas a is going to have a receiver that's going to blow everybody's skirts up, man. Just wait. They'll be fine at receiver. Is it Demond? They haven't been, though. I mean, they, 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 they haven't been, though. That's the one thing that has held them back. Like, I think Hayes King could actually end up being a pretty good quarterback, assuming he wins that job, and I believe that he will. But even a year ago, you know, they just haven't been dynamic on the edge. I didn't think they were good at quarterback. I, I, I didn't think Kellen Mond was all that. I, I thought he was robotic. I, I thought, it, you know, that you know if they have a great quarterback, I, I think they beat Georgia at Georgia a couple of years ago. I, I thought he thought he was, you know, not, not good enough to, to win in the West. I got to give Foster Moss some credit here. He calls them the Texas B&A Aggies. I like that. <laughs> I think we're going to have to use I mean, that listen, going forward. 
I'm just trying to help people make a little money. Nine and a half, I feel like that's a fairly soft number. I feel like there's a lot of room on the other side of that. All I'm trying to do is uh, help folks out. Scott Greenhouse asked a good question. He says, does Vandy win a game? I mean, it's got to be yeah. out of conference. I, I don't think Vanderbilt's capable of winning an SEC game, though. I, I really, I mean, I, at least I assume they're probably not. The truth is I couldn't name one person on the roster. But uh, I'm assuming that's a pretty depleted roster that Clark Lee is taking over with the Commodores. I have them as the worst. My three worst teams in the SEC are Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, and Tennessee. And I'm guessing the gap between Vandy and the other two is probably fairly significant. You think South Carolina is better than Mississippi State? I do. I think that South Carolina does two pretty good things. They're going to help them win at least a couple of games this year. I think they run the ball really well. They ran it last year pretty well without Marshawn Lloyd. Now he's back. Frankly, they got a lot of defensive linemen that can play for just about anybody. So, But those two things. Plus, I kind of like Shane Beamer right now. I thought Beamer was one of the stars of SEC Media Days. I thought he had a little swag to him. So uh, I think think South Carolina beats Tennessee. I'll say that much. I'm not sure where the game is, but I'll, I'll take South Carolina over Tennessee. I believe it is at Tennessee this year. Well, there you go. Road win for Shane Beamer in year one. That's a good way to build a pro- that's a good way to build a program right there. All right. We kind of did our cover more as we were doing. We took a bunch of comments. We'll take a couple more of those right now. Um, Tanil Calvino, I'm never switching to Texas AM. But listen, here's the thing y'all gotta understand. And Connor's bracing this because I say this all the time. I have correctly on the record picked the winner of the SEC West four years in a row. It's not an easy thing to do because Alabama's only won the league in two of those four years. I hit Auburn in 2017, hit LSU in 2019, and got Alabama in the two intervening years around that. So my pick in the SEC West carries a little bit of weight. So we we took a hard look at Texas A&M, and eventually I do think they get over the hump, and I think they win that division over Nick Saban while he's at Alabama. But close but no cigar this year. I'll take Alabama one, A&M two. Uh, Benjamin says, I am right, you know. Well, listen, being right sometimes, Benjamin's a huge burden. You have to, you know, kind of (laughs) – Wear the weight of the world on your shoulders. Uh, what else are we going to do here comment-wise? Guys, anybody else got anything they want to say while I pull up a couple of comments here before we get ready to say goodbye? Hey, Brandon, how come you don't talk about your SEC, SEC East predictions like you do your SEC West predictions? Yeah, the SEC East had a nice streak going until exactly one year ago. So the SEC <laughs> East streak of correct predictions ended last year, and that is the way that goes down. Uh, Frank Patterson says, Mike's breakdown of our running back room the show last night was fair mike for the folks who didn't get a chance to hear that give us a little bit of that breakdown one more time if you don't mind in the final moments that we have before we go off the air well i was saying that because of the nature of the opponent then the opener that james cook is probably the favorite to start i mean when you look at what the game plan is going to be i I think it's going to be comparable to what we saw in the g-day game i mean you want to get out of there with jt daniels upright Uh, you can afford to lose the game you can't afford to lose your quarterback if you want to win a championship so I like James Cook coming out. I, I think the running back rotation will, will will kind of balance out depending on the opponent, uh, depending on the, the score. I think you're going to see a lot of Zamir White early. Um, I think as the season progresses, Kendall Milton takes over. I think uh, Kenny McIntosh emerges more as the season uh, goes on. Uh, Cook is more of a one-dimensional guy, not comfortable between the tackles, uh, but really good on the perimeter, the fastest of the running backs, and the best route runner and the best catcher deep downfield. So I think James Cook will, will end up in that role. I think we might even see him play some slot. Uh, they'll do some different things with him. Uh, and then I think I like Kenny as a guy that's pretty versatile that can catch or run the ball. Uh, but, but Kendall Milton, to me, is a guy that eventually takes over the job and, and gives you the flashbacks to the Nick Chubb. I, I think Milton and McIntosh are the Chubb and Michelle um, that the Georgia fans have been waiting for. Somebody brought up uh, something kind of interesting in the comment section. The name has already moved past me, so I can't read the comment. I apologize for not reading the name, but the idea of Bill O'Brien taking over as Alabama offensive coordinator, I think that's one of the big questions around the SEC. O'Brien's obviously a proven commodity, having been a head coach in Houston Texans. What Sarkeesian did for Alabama a year ago was so impressive. Hard to imagine anybody can match what Sarkeesian did there a year ago. I'll read one more. We'll get off the air. Johnny Lester says, will Clemson's defense choose a quick death by loading the box and uh, giving up the deep pass, or will they uh, choose a slow death by backing up to defend the pass, allowing running backs to gouge them mercilessly? Uh, uh, Connor, go ahead and uh, take that on the way out the door here. They're not going to have to choose. That defensive line is good enough to do whatever it wants to Georgia's offensive line, and I've said time and time again, whichever offensive line ends up blocking better in that game is going to end up winning. Clemson's defense is good enough to do what it wants to against this Georgia offense in on September 4th in Charlotte. 
Yeah, listen, we're going to keep saying over and over again, that game plan of what you do against a lot of guys from the recruiting standpoint that Georgia would like to have had. Obviously, Miles Murphy comes to mind, Brian Brzee. There are names there that Georgia fans know well, and they are in orange, and you got to really factor them in and deal with them when you get ready for that game coming up on September 4th. We'll have a lot more conversation about that as we head towards the month of September. Of course, lots of coverage heading towards the weekend with the start of UGA practice with the players themselves. Have to say about that. We'll hear more about that uh, as we go through the weekend there, too. So great stuff coming up on Dog Nation. Dog Nation Daily also tomorrow at 10 a.m. Jeff Sintel stops by for that. going to be a lot of fun. But for all of you, big thanks for being here on Cover 4 Live here tonight. Hope you have a, a great evening. And we'll see you back here next week and then every week as we go through the 2021 season. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you.